Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers, a study that we have been in now for over a year and a half. It was in February of 2014 where we decided to uh, hit the pause button in what we were doing here on Seeds of Truth, uh, then called the Catholic Hour, uh, so as to explore more of the Catholic faith. And when I was sitting down with um, some of my friends, uh, I decided to take up some uh, new subject matter. That subject matter that is all about the great Christian thinkers. I thought, you know, to talk about the great Christian thinkers through the years would really allow us the opportunity to engage so much of the Christian and Catholic faith, and do it not only through the prism of history, but man in history. And indeed, this is what we have been about over the last year and a half. And we started with the first church fathers, huh? Not St. Polycarp or St. Ignatius or, or St. Clement, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it is to remember that those four evangelists really are the fathers of the Christian and Catholic faith. Out from that, we then took up the uh, more classic sense of what we mean by the church fathers in those figures of St. Clement, St. Ignatius, and St. Polycarp. And um, so this is what we have been about for the past year and a half, and we have arrived at a point where we are now discussing the events of the 16th century. We spent three weeks in the Protestant Reformation, and out from that study, we now have taken up a uh, study of the Jesuits in the 16th century, a study that is comprised of four weeks, huh, with St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. Uh, uh, Francis Xavier last week, and this evening, a figure that I am most excited about, St. Peter Canisius. And uh, as I do from one week to the next, uh, I will be talking about St. Peter Canisius with John O'Hara. So, John, great to have you with me another evening. Always wonderful to be here, Joe. Thank you. So, John, it could be said <laughs> that the restoration of the Catholic Church in Germany is largely attributed to the Jesuits. And if it's largely attributed to the Jesuits, then we can also say it is largely attributed to uh, St. Peter Canisius, our figure this evening. If St. Boniface was the apostle to Germany, we can rightfully say St. Peter Canisius is the second apostle to Germany for all that he accomplished. Again, another Jesuit, another disciple we can say of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and, and a man that has many lessons for us. He is another doctor of the Church, right? One of 36 doctors, so uh, we have that opportunity to talk about uh, what he contributed. But to talk about a great Christian thinker, to talk about a St. John, is to remember that he left an impression upon a particular place and time in history. And so what we are about on this radio program is appreciating the historical context while at the same time appreciating uh, the man himself. Yeah, these are human beings, just mm -hmm. like we are, and uh, they come on the scene, they have no idea what's going to happen, and yeah. it was Saint Leo, <laughs> it was uh, Pope Leo XIII that called him the second apostle uh, yes, to, yes. uh, to Germany, yes. Anyway, he was born in 1521, died in 1597, at pretty good age at that time of 76 years old. And he was born to a quite well-to-do family, 
They weren't the nobles, but they were quite up there. He was the oldest of eight children, and his mother died when he was quite young, And but a stepmother raised him very fervently and very devout Catholic, and uh, he took, took the church seriously. He uh, went to the University of Cologne, graduated at the age of 19 mm. with a master's degree, which was quite quite good at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, so he went to Louvain in Belgium to study law there, but it wasn't for him. It didn't take him long to figure that out. He went back to Cologne to read more theology, and while he was there, he came across a man we've mentioned before, mm -hmm. Father Peter Favre, and a Jesuit number one, I guess. He mm -hmm. was even ordained before Ignatius of Loyola was. And he went to a Jesuit retreat in Mainz, Germany, given by Peter Favre, during week number two of this retreat, Peter Canisius decided he was going to be a Jesuit, and that he did. He was accepted into the order as a novice, and he prays, he helps the poor, he studies, and it was during this time that he wrote two, two works. One of them was on St. Cyril of Alexandria, which you heard on this very mm. show <laughs> in June of 2014. Look it up. And he also wrote on uh, Leo the Great, the pope that we mentioned mm -hmm. a little earlier. So he wrote those, so he's getting uh, ready to do some writing, and after that, he's getting to be known in Jesuit orders, and he was assigned to go to the Council of Trent, and he attended two sessions as a theologian expert mm -hmm. at Trent, and even when Trent moved to Bologna briefly, he was there. He was called to Rome to work with Ignatius of Loyola for five months, and he was like his personal secretary for that amount of time, but then Ignatius of Loyola assigns him to Messina, that's in Sicily, mm -hmm. where he founds the first Jesuit college in Sicily, and that gets going pretty well. Now, this seems to be one of his fortes is establishing successful colleges. Yes. He's, we'll call him a college professor, which yeah. he is. And he establishes not only the one in Messina, but several others as we go later on. He then is called back to Rome. And then the Duke William IV of Bavaria needs several college professors in Bavaria. So off goes uh, St. Peter Canisius with two other Jesuits and they found a university there in Germany, and it takes quite hold, and it was so successful that Protestants did not mind sending their children there mm -hmm. because it was a, a good uh, thing. And if I can just get this out a little early, one of St. Peter Canisius's fortes throughout his entire life was his attitude of not mocking, putting down the other side. He, mm -hmm. he, he had a positive approach all the way through, mm -hmm. and uh, he kept that up. He also was very enthusiastic about printing. This was the new media sensation oh, of yeah. the age, and he was very serious about that. And certainly, if you take a look at our own time, look at the media we have going on now. And if you want to be interested in getting your message out, you'd better be familiar with that. Yeah. Now, right now, he's in Germany, and he's founding a very successful uh, university, and he'll go on from there. You know, you were talking about his uh, non-confrontational way. This is what Pope Benedict XVI uh, emeritus has to say, in a historical period of strong confessional differences, Canisius avoided, and this is something quite extraordinary, the harshness and rhetoric of anger, something rare, as I said, in the discussion between Christians in those times, and aimed only at presenting the spiritual roots and at reviving the faith in the church. You see, what's going on here with uh, St. Peter Canisius, John? When you are non-confrontational, when you are rooted in humility, the conversation evolves. It's disarming. And note what Benedict XVI said. The conversation 
the encounter was aimed only at presenting the spiritual roots and at reviving the faith in the church. So he's rooted in the objective moral standard, the objective revelation of truth. And if the Protestant, if the Lutheran was going to be angry at that, or if he was going to be harsh, he would simply, in that great cardinal virtue of temperance, respond with truth. And what would happen over time? Well, <laughs> the conversation would evolve. He was transforming diocese by diocese, region by region, Germany. He was restoring the Catholic roots in Germany. Why? Because of this disarming way of engaging truth. Was he negotiating truth? Was he passively listening like some of us think today when we don't engage with that harshness of rhetoric? No, we cannot be mistaken that what St. Peter Canisius teaches us and what Benedict XVI echoes is a much deeper truth that when we give the other person the experience of being listened to, what happens? We yes. allow the discussion to evolve. Why was he such a good college professor, John? Because he entered into that art of accompaniment. Not, again, an accompaniment that's passive. No, one that sees the value of friendship as foundational and one that is always, always about truth in love. I know you had mentioned it, John, so I really just wanted to focus in on that and highlight that as a real charism, if you will, of this man. And it's interesting, Benedict XVI said, and I have not read this anywhere else, but he said this was a mark of the early Jesuit community. That really struck me, that this was a mark of the early Jesuit community. And certainly, I know, John, you weren't with me last week on uh, with St. Francis Xavier, Sorry for that. <laughs> but uh, very similar. I believe that uh, St. Francis Xavier, when he went to the Orient, he devised various liturgies that had a lot to do with the Orient, with, I guess, Asian community that he was at. Yes. And they appreciated that. Now, it was Catholic. We had the Eucharist. Oh, sure. But uh, people back in Rome thought, no, no, this is too much of a change, and they did not like that liturgy. Now, I did not research this very much, but had that liturgy hung around, uh, we might have been able to make some more Christian inroads into the Orient than, than actually happened. And thank goodness for St. Francis Xavier, because he did that. This seems to be a Jesuit talent. Yeah. Now, Peter Canisius, after going to Germany, it, when you talk about Germany, you, they really didn't have countries. The country of Germany uh, did yeah. not exist at this time. Certainly there was German spoken and German yeah. people, but I mean, they were all duchies. But anyway, after that, he goes to Vienna. It was originally Catholic, but they weren't going to Mass mm -hmm. <clears throat> much. And he goes to Vienna, something of an administrator, and he works quite patiently for several years there and does a marvelous job of bringing people back to the faith. Through his preaching, he was a very good preacher, and, and his writing. And after that, he goes to Prague, and he's in Prague for some time, several, quite a few years, and he does an excellent job of keeping Prague Catholic. And Prague was Catholic up until another heresy came, which is called secular modernism, and mm -hmm. then they seem to drift away. But he did a good job of keeping Prague Catholic, Christian, as well as Vienna. And Vienna mm -hmm. remained Catholic up until very, very recently, until now, really. Yeah, John, I, I wanted to read something from his um, spiritual journal. You know, after he'd received his uh, doctorate in theology at Bologna in 1549, and he's only 28 years old at this time, which is quite extraordinary, as you had touched upon, St. Ignatius assigned him to carry out his apostolate in Germany. Uh, and it was at that point that he met with uh, Paul III at Castel Gandolfo. And uh, after that meeting, he went to St. Peter's Basilica to pray. 
And it was there where he uh, put something, he wrote something in his journal, and I wanted to read this. This is St. Peter Canisius. There I felt that a great consolation and the presence of grace had been granted to me through these intercessors of Saints Peter and Paul. They confirmed my mission in Germany and seemed to transmit to me, as an apostle of Germany, the support of their benevolence. Mm. You know, Lord, in how many ways and how often on that same day you entrusted Germany to me, which I was later to continue to be concerned about and for which I would have liked to live and die. So there's this kind of affection he has for Germany. Uh, something that we don't want to miss is not only was he a great professor, uh, preacher, and certainly good writer, I say good writer, and he had someone who he was writing with. In fact, he struggled with his writing, as uh, some have noted. Um, but alongside of that, he also was a man who had a heart for the poor. Um, in some of these areas uh, in Germany, he spent a great deal of time in the hospitals and prisons, mm. right? He had a heart for the person who was in the pew. He had a heart for the person who was in the street. He had a heart for the person who was in the hospital, who was in the prison, right? He had a heart for everyone. And this, again, is really a mark of every great saint. And could we not add, John, that at this time, Germany was in chaos, and yet this is where God sends him. Why do I mention this? Because today, there are many areas in our own state, our own country, and certainly our world, where there is a lot of chaos, a lot of disorder. And how do we go about evangelizing? Do we say to ourselves, well, I don't want to live in the state of California. I'm going to go to the state of Florida or to the state of Texas where there's no taxes. <laughs> no, we have to bloom where God plants us. And in doing so, allow that bloom, that beauty to evangelize and be at peace with that. And if God calls you to go to a place of disorder, disunity, and chaos, then trust Him. Well said, Joe. Trust Him with your whole heart, mind, and soul, just like St. Peter Canisius did. If there's anything that these great Christian thinkers and these saints teach us is that they are examples of holiness examples of faithfulness and trust. And if we can learn from that, if we can imitate that, if we can be enriched by that, we are all the more better for it. God sent him. God sent him to travel 20,000 miles yeah. on foot and on horseback mm. all over Europe and to the east, as far as Prague at least, and back again. And, and he did it. He wrote a catechism of the Catholic Church, it was translated in 15 languages, and then he wrote a simpler version of the Catholic Church, and then he wrote almost a child's version of that same catechism. So mm -hmm. he had three catechisms uh, for various levels, trying to get across the Catholic Church uh, to various people. By the way, he was Jesuit number eight. If mm -hmm. uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola and Peter Favor were one and two, yeah. he was Jesuit number eight, so he came along early. And the Jesuits were hugely instrumental in what is called the Catholic Counter-Reformation, because once they got, got in stride, they were able to hold on what was left of Catholic Europe. Yeah, they, they really did. You know, you mentioned the catechisms there, John, and I want to note that first catechism in, what, 1555. This catechism in its structure, and I went back into it, it's beautiful how he lays it out, and basically it's in two parts, the first of which is wisdom, wisdom tied to faith, hope, and love, and the second part is on justice. And, oh, and what wow. he does with these two virtues, 
uh, fruits of the Spirit, if you will, of wisdom and justice, is he ties them to the sacramental life. Um, so the Catechism was really a moral compendium, if you will, in light of the sacramental church. And to go through that is beautiful and striking. Benedict XVI makes note that this catechism was so influential that it was uh, something that he read growing up as one from Germany. Interesting enough, they didn't call it the catechism, they called it the Canisius. Interesting. <laughs> because he was so widely respected. I mean, we go to Benedict because he is a man from Germany. And as we've talked about, John, St. Peter Canisius transformed Germany. So you can appreciate the kind of great affection that any Catholic German would have for St. Peter Canisius. Uh, Benedict XVI would probably have read that catechism as a young oh, man yeah. oh, in Nazi yeah. Germany before he was mm. drafted into the Air Force. Mm -hmm. uh, wow, uh, you know, what a time when you need some good solace. Yeah. One of the things, another thing that got me about Peter Canisius and a lot of saints is they're workaholics. I mean, th this mm. guy knew what he was up to every day and went at it. Uh, you know, there wasn't really much time for TV. He, you know, he was he was busy in the Lord's field, and I admire and I respect that. Yeah, and there's something there actually, John. You, you mentioned the television. I thought about this recently. Here we are in the 16th century, and while certainly there was a lot going on, there was a lot less distraction. So you have in, in so many of these great men and women uh, that singular focus where there was just a lot less distraction. You know, we say, blessed are the pure of heart. When you translate that Greek, it's, yes, pure, clean, but a heart that is not mixed. Uh -huh. That could be also translated as, blessed are the single-hearted who are pure, right? Because in that sense, you can maybe get a better hold of what it means to be pure of heart, to be single-hearted, to have that kind of single-mindedness, that laser-like focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what St. Peter Canisius had. One of the things that Benedict XVI talked about and many others talked about in their writings on St. Peter Canisius was his friendship with Jesus Christ. That was a very important word to St. Peter Canisius, his friendship with Jesus Christ. He is regarded as a quasi-mystic because he spent a great deal of time contemplating the, the face of Jesus. This was another charism of the Jesuit order, right? Because in St. Ignatius' spiritual exercises, you are made to do what? Contemplate the life of Jesus in sacred scripture. So he spent a great deal of time contemplating the life of Jesus, contemplating the events in the life of Jesus. And so he was gaining a deeper appreciation of what prayer was all about. So you see in his spiritual journals, I tell you what, my dear friends, for all of you listening out there, if you can get your hands on uh, his spiritual journals, they are gripping. <laughs> they are gripping. And he talks, talks a lot about rooting your prayer in the Mass, right? Rooting your prayer in the Mass. And out from that more formal prayer will you begin to understand that uh, more informal prayer of conversation with God offering up anything and everything in your day to God. This was very important to St. Peter Canisius. It really allowed him to see what God wanted him to see in each and every encounter. You just mentioned it, John. He was a workaholic, but he didn't see it as we think of it today. Yeah. You know, He didn't see that word workaholic as we think of it today. No, no he saw his work as 
a vocation for the glory of God. Correct, yes. All of our work should be a vocation for the glory of God, right? Yeah. This is what St. Peter Canisius was about. You mentioned he died at the age of 76. 76. And to his last breath was he working for the glory of God. This is what our lives should be about. And we yeah. say, gosh, isn't that a bit radical, Joe? Well, what does the word radical mean? It comes from the Latin means Correct. root, going to the origin. Correct. For St. Peter of Canisius, his life was about going to the origin, going to the first reason of why he was born, which again was to give glory to God. In 1571, he had a stroke, which left him somewhat paralyzed. I don't know how badly. And now he had an assistant, but he wasn't able to write with his right, you know, with, mm -hmm, with his hand. Mm -hmm. And so he had a, an amanuensis who mm -hmm. would, would do his writing. But he kept at it until another stroke eventually took his life. Thinking about, you know, remember Jesuits uh, do not do their liturgy of the hours in community. That's one of their, and yes. also they don't do their yes. mental, their daily mental prayer in community. They do it alone based on St. Ignatius's uh, writings, mm -hmm. and, and his method. Mm -hmm. And so he, he did that. And, and God bless him. And I'm thinking about today's mass. Today is All Saints Day, November the 2nd. All Souls Day. Oh, yeah, right. All yeah. Souls Day, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All Souls Day, yeah. And readings from the Book of Wisdom and mm. Psalm 23, and then another reading from Paul, all about God's love and his mercy and that, that soul that never dies. And then the gospel, uh, blessed are the people who are not that bright. Um, the, these are the people Jesus says he's speaking to. You, yeah. know, you are the people that have yeah. deep truth. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, really... That is quite something to meditate on today. I mean, I'm not tying this with Peter Canisius, but yes, if you want to meditate on the Mass, there's lots there. Yeah. Well, and as you bring that up, John, another charism, if you will, of St. Peter Canisius, like that of St. Francis Xavier, was to bring that message down so it is comprehensible to the lay person. And so he was acutely aware of the need to speak simply and at the same time to meet people where they're at. I mean, if, if we call it a Jesuit charism, let it be called a Jesuit charism that we can all learn from. Yes. Right, because uh, in 2015, there are a lot of people who are on the outside looking in, and it just doesn't make sense, John. Uh -huh. And it is our job, it, it is our duty, it is our vocation, in love, uh -huh. in love, to present the beauty and the wonder of this message in such a way that it does invite. Mm -hmm. And is that not an important word for us this evening? Is this not an important word that was close to St. Peter Canisius' heart, the invitation? Why did he not overwhelm people when he was talking to those on the other side of the pew, if you will? Well, because he knew that if he did that, there would be no invitation. And it is all about the invitation. Correct. And it's interesting, the word invitation the invitatio or invitare, John. It means to summon and to challenge. Uh, isn't that interesting? To summon and to challenge. So when whatever it is that you're doing is attractive, it will summon, it will bring someone to you. And at the same time, what it is that that person is being pulled to is a challenge. You see, uh -huh. there's a kind of synchronicity, if you will. Something St. Peter Canisius understood and this is why when we talk about uh, the art of, of accompaniment, the art of giving someone the experience of being listened to, is about the art of the invitation and, at the same time, the art of challenging someone to go deeper in their faith. We live in an age where uh, the Catholic faith, unfortunately, has dried up in many areas. 
And it is our call. Again, it is our duty and vocation to uh, bring that life-giving spirit, John, everywhere we go. And this is what St. Peter Canisius did. The Catholic faith in Germany was drying up, and St. Ignatius sent right. him on, on his way, and in doing so, sent him on a mission that would, that would transform Germany. Yeah, and thank goodness that Verberia is still quite Catholic, and we mm. have Benedict XVI from there, and, there, and the Catholic Church is still available in Germany. I wasn't, I've been maybe two or three days of my life in Germany, and I walked into a Catholic Church on like a 10 o'clock in the morning, and I would say there must have been 25 people. And no mass was going on, 25 mm-hmm. people there, mostly women, praying mm-hmm. quietly. I thought, mm-hmm. wow, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had the chance to, to go to Germany, and I don't know if, if any of our listeners have had the chance to go to Germany or live in Germany. I know there are some listeners out there who are t- tuning in by way of podcast in Germany. That cathedral in Cologne, Germany, breathtaking, yeah. breathtaking. <laughs> now, uh, one of the universities that he really got founded was the University of Fribourg. Mm-hmm. Now, in my research, it said Switzerland. Fribourg, there is a Fribourg University in, in Germany, but you know the Swiss border may have gone that far. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. But uh, Edith Stein studied at Fribourg. There was some good, uh, this is in the 1920s. But anyway, he did find several universities, and good for him. He was prominent in education, wanted to get the faith across through that medium. Yeah, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of action. He was a man who embodied the charisms of Jesus Christ. And this is why um, he is a saint. Uh, this is why we call him the second apostle to Germany. And this is why we should uh, learn more about him and read his writings, because they are all so beautiful and so impactful. I mean, the yeah. word that, that grabbed me, I thought, what's the word that comes to mind after reading this stuff? impact. Yeah. You know, his life and his writings had an impact on me. So, John, I really do want to encourage our listening audience to yeah. read more about St. Peter. His feast day should be easy to remember. It's the shortest day of the year, December the 21st. That's the yes. day he died. Yes. Amen. Well, with that, John, we'll go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 530 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.